0: Welcome to Utopian Horizons. Hello and welcome to episode 16 of Utopian Horizons, a podcast where I cover a different utopia, dystopia, utopian thinker or movement in each episode. Yes, if you listen regularly, I have decided to change the intro for something that actually explains what the podcast is for people who haven't heard it before. So there you go. This episode is about a 1992 cyberpunk B-movie called Nemesis. It's a bit different to other stuff I've covered on the podcast and I do talk with my guest a bit about what might make that interesting. You know, these... Um, genre films that have been largely forgotten and sort of found themselves on the trash pile of history. You know, what makes those interesting and what we can get out of those that we can't get from other more well-known stuff so I will imagine many of you will not have heard this film um, or seen it but I hope you will stick with it and listen to us talk about the movie and some of the interesting themes that come out of that. My guest on this episode is the first returning guest I've had on the podcast so... Sean McTiernan, who came on to talk about Kamikaze 89, has returned to discuss this film. If you haven't listened to the Kamikaze 89 episode and you don't know who Sean is, he does a podcast called All Units, which is about thriller films, which has a very interesting format where he takes a, a theme so stuff like uniform or uh, navigation and things like that and he picks out films that explore those themes in, in interesting ways you will hear sean humbly put himself down a, a couple of times during the conversation but his reading of films i think is very insightful and intelligent and i very much enjoy listening to his podcast so perhaps you will too if you like this one so just um search for all units and i'm sure you can find it there was something i meant to say if you're sort of getting fed up with the amount of cyberpunk I'm covering on this, I'm afraid that's not over yet. There will be more. I'm doing going to be doing an episode on Strange Days. But just to say, I am, I am wary that I've done a lot of cyberpunk stuff. So I am uh, going to be doing some other things. So the, um, the podcast will be getting a little bit more diverse again. One other thing quickly before I get on to the conversation about Nemesis. I've started a Discord, which for anyone who don't know is basically a chat thing. It works, like there's an app for it, but also works in browsers, so it's uh, really easy to get into and use. So there's a few of us in there now just talking about you know utopia and the podcast and stuff so if you want to come and have a look and talk to me and some other people please do so it would be cool to have some more people in there chatting i will change the pin tweet on my twitter page so it's got a link to the discord so if you just go on the twitter at utopian horizons then the pin tweet should have a link to the discord so you can find it easily i think that's everything i wanted to cover so on to my conversation with sean Joining me now is Sean McTiernan from the film podcast for people that don't like film podcasts all units. He is here to talk about Nemesis. Thank you very much for joining me, Sean. Hello, I'm sorry uh for making you watch Nemesis. This it's the second time you've apologised. <laughs> <Well, I've laughs> I said I'd do it formally. I
1: wanted uh I wanted witnesses. Um, <laughs> but uh it's a film I like, but it's not not for everybody.
0: Okay. So this is a film from 1992, directed by Albert Pion. Pune, I, I think. I think it's Pune, I'm not sure. Yeah. So you probably know more about this guy than me. I I presume he's like a B movie director, essentially.
1: Yeah, yeah. A lot of cult um, sort of films. A lot of post apocalyptic stuff. Actually, this is the only one I can could really remember. But he was definitely called Ed Wood or the new Ed Wood because of how. Poorly, people act in his films at one stage, um, but he's very, very into like action, I guess, and stunts and sort of very active in the eighties and nineties. He directed the first Captain America film, like the one from the eighties, and okay. uh, yeah, and he directed. Um, I know he had this very weird, very very initial career where the legendary Japanese actor Toshiro Mifune tried to get him an internship on a Akira Kurosawa film, but he. Didn't get it, and he ended up working on a um, TV show with a curator. Of course. I was director of photography. I only remember that because it's so incongruous compared to the rest of his career. I'd love to tell you there was a clear through line, but there is not. Uh, he said himself, I think, at one stage, he didn't actually care about the post-apocalypse, which is great. And uh, he just... that was were the opportunities he was given. But there's a lot of interesting stuff, and it sounds like... I've only seen Nemesis, but apparently Nemesis is like a series... And um, yeah. the gender stuff that's referred to kind of briefly in this, or that's kind of used to, is, is comes up a lot more. But again, I think he just might not not please ignorance. Doesn't really care about that stuff. He just wants to make films, you know. So yeah,
0: okay. So before we going to talk about the film specifically I just wanted to ask if there's any particular reason that you are interested in genre film because you cover a lot of like genre films on your podcast as well and if there's anything in particular you think that you can glean or anything that they reveal that you don't get from you know other films. I, I ask that because like I have covered genre stuff on this podcast but it's stuff that's Passed into the canon to some degree, yeah. Like it, it's stuff that's taken seriously to some degree. So, whereas this film has a bit where the main character jumps off a pole and they shoot the metal pole and the pole blows up, and a bit where he does a backflip off a waterfall and blows something up with a rocket. So this is like this is a uh, you know low budget, dodgy impersonations of foreign accents, all the trappings of a kind of B movie film. And I think it's cool that you've bought something from that. Well, because it's not not something that i've covered like even though you and we did kamikaze 89 when you came on before which is not a well-known film but that's still kind of it's kind of like a arty film so it has a kind of air of legitimacy about it if you know what i mean
1: yeah i mean it's got Fassbinder in it right yeah so like that's yeah automatically yeah uh...
0: yeah so even though this other stuff i've covered you know other sci-fi i've covered is from a ghettoized genre it's kind of broken out broken out from that for some degree whereas this is firmly in the ghetto so yeah i just went to ask if there's any, maybe the answer is you just like genre films but I, I just wanted to know if there's anything you found particularly interesting about them or why you're drawn to them
1: well i think it's actually i really like that question because you've drawn the distinction there between stuff that's passed into the canon and stuff that hasn't which is actually very rarely done even by people who profess to like genre cinema there's definitely a tendency to automatically view stuff that has passed into the canon as the best of genre cinema, which I tend not to agree with a lot of the time. I don't think that kind of trappings you know like maybe gestures towards mainstream or gestures towards artist stuff are necessarily you know the best thing like but part of my podcast is creating kind of a new canon if you like actually um for myself or sort of a school of cinema out of the stuff i like right which is very 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 egotistical but it is my (laughs) podcast i do pay the hosting so um but it uh it's it it is very interesting to me that a lot of the stuff you know the, the genre stuff that has been canonized it's one person so so, like, Martin Scorsese has this kind of film history, alternate film history series of films that is not as well known now. I think it was, like, a three-part series, but every single film he talks in that were sort of the preserve of nerds to some extent or enthusiasts beforehand and are now, like, films that even the casual sort of person who dabbled in cults, especially American cinema, would recognise immediately, you know? So all it takes is, like, one person. And I don't think I'm going to achieve that, but what I took from that is that individual perspective is very useful when getting stuff out of these genre films because they are pieces of they are product you know what i mean they're and Mm. all cinema is but they are consciously made to be consumed now my patience if you like or my interest in genre film starts to tail off around the time that they're a specific type of self-awareness became very very uh, prevalent where they became about themselves to such a degree they weren't about anything else um, okay. whereas like previously, it wouldn't really work for for this show. But I basically at the moment exclusively listen to old time radio as well as watching. I don't know. I've seen like ninety films this year, and I think seven were released after nineteen sixty, including rewatching this. So I'm I'm very much in the genre crime mode the first century at the moment, and I find it just reveals stuff about society and is interesting to watch people work. You know, like the actors actually do these things, and and there's sort of a Kind of a breeziness about it that I appreciate, and it helps balance out the other stuff I I watch. And I do think you can you can definitely even seeing what people were pretending to care about is always interesting. And there's a lot of that in genre fiction.
0: Mm. I'm thinking out loud, but I wonder because of you know the low budgets and stuff and the kind of slapdash nature of some of those films. In some respects, they're like less less mediated. I don't know if that's the right word. Like the if you're talking about culture, like revealing stuff about society, I think it'll come out. Perhaps more obviously in genre film, I don't know
1: definitely there's a, like there's a set of assumptions that genre film operates on that you you basically especially earlier stuff, you just have to fulfill a certain level of requirements, and after that, it used to be you could do such weird things, like if you look at film noir, which people always bring up because it's very easily summarized in a couple of images and a couple of tropes, but it is like intensely overwhelmingly. Pop Freudian The analysis didn't need to happen For it to be that way It's all there You know Literally Freud is mentioned In a lot of noirs And and, and that kind of thing But even further back Like James Whale Who directed the Bride of Frankenstein In the big horror films I watched One of his films recently um, Old Dark House Which sort of Bought about the Old Dark House genre And it was It would be a progressive genre film today. And in fact, like a lot of that pre-code stuff, it reveals a lot of the culture because they they have that shorthand and that doesn't need to feel prestige, Mm. if you know what I mean. That's why I think like really, really low budget indie cinema and really almost industrially produced genre cinema can often feel very similar in the end because, you know, people are barely hanging on to the concept of making a film in a lot of cases, you Mm. know. And uh, it can often produce very interesting results. That's that's sort of why I like Nemesis as well. Like I, I had a sort of a come-to-Jesus uh, moment, I guess, um, like maybe 10 years ago when I used to be... I don't know if you know about Mystery Science Theatre. Do you know what Mystery no. Science Theatre is? So Mystery Science Theatre 3000 is sort of internet nerd culture before internet nerd culture. And I mean that in the most derogatory way possible, right? So it was they've had these they bought the rights to um old films or often they were in public domain and they created a fictional framework which justified having three silhouettes in the corner of the screen making fun of them so you'd see these edited versions of films and they would kind of make fun of uh what was happening on the screen, and they had all these in jokes and stuff, and I loved this when I was a, a you know teenager. Obviously, like the the we used to buy DVDs from America and spend a lot of money trying to torrent it before broadband existed. And oh. mm. but as I got older, I was like, well, this is like really a shit way to look at um, films. You know, it's really bad. Even these products, like even something like this it's not that, oh, you should take it seriously and you should automatically like something Mm. because effort went into it. It's that you can glean more from it. And you can still think it's funny. You can still think it's bad. But to kind of create a surface reading of it as a culture, which I think, unfortunately, a lot of both genre film fandom and also genre films themselves now, like horror is especially bad, for reducing itself down to a series of signifiers when it goes into kind of retro mode. So I kind of... It wasn't Nemesis, but there's another Albert Pugh film, I think it might be Cyborg, that they did a Mystery Science Theatre episode on, and it is a very easy film to make fun of in that way. Again, there's no problem making fun of it, but making that the only way to interpret a film is, I realised kind of, you know, when I was about, 18 or 19 that that was not the best way to go about
0: it okay well let's um get on to talking about nemesis specifically then i will attempt to outline the world somewhat because i'm guessing not many people listening would have would have seen it so it very much draws on the classic cyberpunk tropes very unsubtly i mean it, it literally i think the first line or so is is laying out um laying that out so it talks about cyborg outlaws and information terrorists and all these classic um, tropes i suppose a brief synopsis would be helpful if difficult so this is about a guy who starts off as a lapd is it lapd he's a police yeah, i think officer. it's lapd L- I,
1: I can try summarize it if you want
0: i'll have a quick go because i've, I've okay, written down okay. some notes so uh so all right, okay so yeah he's lapd the officer at the beginning he's he's fighting some terrorists He's already enhanced in some way. He's 86.5% human, as he says when he's questioned by a terrorist to see how human he is. And it's basically a, a Robocop like situation, the first of many references or, or borrowing from other films, a bit of Terminator in there, a bit of Rambo, perhaps. But yeah, he gets shot to pieces basically. And then it kind of goes off on a globe trotting, rather oddly paced plot where it looks like it's gonna be a revenge film, then that quickly ends. And then it's that classic, We need you back, you're the you're the best at what you do. We need you to go on a mission to get some terrorists. That's not the end of the story. I think perhaps we'll get to the rest, but that's probably enough enough for a setup. Yeah, the the first thing I want to ask, which I thought you've already kind of touched on it, to extent, it is that like, do you take the surface level concerns of this film like seriously in any way, as in like what the narrative presents itself to be about, like this classic kind of post-human fi book thing? Uh,
1: yeah, a little bit. I, I I mean, I think it's again, you know, you're you're looking at often the most interesting ideas come out of a basic framework being iterated on over and over and over again, right? To kind of touch on the general genre thing again. And I think Cyberpunk to me often feels like this is sort of Cyberpunk as a dead end times a million. You know what I mean? Because it's everything, you know, it's I've seen this called a rip off of Johnny Monomic, where Johnny Monomic hadn't come out yet. Right. You know? And it kinda it kind of <laughs> proves how um to a certain extent Cyberpunk and this sort of post-human stuff can be there's only so many ways to iterate on it in a fictional sense apparently you know Mm. um but i think it's interesting because they do cover not in a massively coherent way but they do cover a huge number of ideas and interpretations of what post-human or enhanced or cyborg actually means you know and um there's a there's a woman in a calculator or whatever, there's a woman in a USB stick, that's a big part of it. And and again, in the sort of uh honkingly obvious genre film way, she's the most human character of all, hmm. or whatever. Um <laughs> you know, I know this stuff is cheesy, like, but I do think I do think it is an interesting and again the constraints of genre fiction means that I think I've to this this to you before, that in death the machineness of the kind of cyborgs and the enhanced people is made most obvious. Now, that's obviously a kind of budget constraint because it's easiest to make something look like a machine if it's not moving that much, Mm -hmm. you know, like if it's not fully articulated. But it does mean that just like... In previous genre movies or genre movies up until that point where you would have had lingering shots of gore and dead bodies to turn that into lingering shots of malfunctioning various pieces of wire and stuff is actually, I don't know, I find it kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean,
0: it's, um, again, as I said, it's not very subtle that it's like dealing with this thing i mean when he gets like shot to pieces as being put together the film repeatedly plays the line you're not really human or are you i I may have misheard this line but he says something like it always scared me that they might take out my soul and replace it with some goddamn matrix tube which is an amazingly cheesy line but yeah and as you say like i'm sort of skipping ahead now we can come back to other stuff but the kind of conclusion that the film has as to what is human is kind of at surface level in any, in any way is this conclusion like you know what's wrong and what is right which is really like cheesy and banal but not as entirely stupid as it sounds I think if you think of someone like um like Philip K Dick and the way he uses like the the android as, as a metaphor so there's um there's a, a non-fiction essay he wrote called Um, the human and the android or the android and the human or, or something like that where he he basically says that he uses the android he's not like writing about androids he uses the android as a metaphor to to stand in for like what's not human and his basic conclusion is like empathy for him is what makes you human and you know androids are people that they function for a system and enforce the power of that system and they they do not have empathy for what they're doing, which obviously he's someone who's taken this like being philosophically sophisticated in some corners, which that's not a million miles away from you know what's wrong and what is right, which is a cheesy line, but I think has a little bit of truth in it, even if it may seem a little bit silly, if you see what I mean.
1: Definitely. And I think when the smouldering exoskeleton of the chief robot is trying to throw the hero off a plane at the end of the film, Obviously, a, a typical scene in any in any film. Mm. It's really clear to me, anyway, that the part of what is initially supposed to be human and then is revealed in a twist as is an, is an android, the most advanced android, mm. that is trying to wipe out the human race. That the reason that android is really evil, or the, the most clear manifestation of what a bad character or antagonist that android is, it has become... Human it's willing to it's supposed to be working for the greater good of its quote unquote kind, but it's willing to completely destroy and mutilate any member of its kind that is in its way for this kind of abstract idea of the greater good that only serves it, you know um which I think is a big part of it as well. I do think that. The, the definition of human in this... You know... Robots are always telling humans... They're not human... Robots are, and androids in this film... Are always having like... Again a calculator... Has a big emotional crisis... At one stage... Um, well it's a woman in a USB 6... So yeah. there's no need to... Um, but... Uh, what really struck me actually... The line of the film... That probably stayed with me... Is... Um, when they're transferring her data... Into a thing... At this like... Weird... Unexplained scene... Near the end of the film... And she says... Oh, this is like dying. And the guy goes, Yeah, but not like humans. Like you're not even allowed to have your own death, you know, it's it's kinda like yeah. it's very the arbitrary divisions keep being made over and over again and the, the level to which they're arbitrary. I mean, again, like I, I said before, I know it's a really small part of the film, but the sort of commitment to giving men women's names and women ridiculous male names like max violence or whatever that character is called like who would be like the kind of cheesy woman sidekick kind of thing that this sort of look part of it is because the film is a cheap weird action film Mm. right and that it is essentially just a series of bizarre set pieces that were able to be filmed on these kind of rubble sets and whatever but the arbitrariness kind of seeps into everything for me and the idea that are you a terrorist or are you a cop or whatever you know and 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 everything like that just gets it it feels very um kind of destroys the binary a lot between those two things you know Mm -hmm. and this idea of what is a conscience and 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 do you have it and is it tied to your consciousness or whatever it's uh
0: yeah and also that perhaps unintentionally because of it being like you said these scenes connected by the fact that they're able to be filmed like on the budget and stuff like that lends it a kind of confusion there's plot threads that feel like they're going somewhere and don't and like that sense of confusion I think unintentionally helps with like this uh confusion between like boundaries and binaries and stuff like that perhaps um so I think one of the most interesting things you said to me when we had a brief conversation about this film is that you think it's really a film about what it means to be a worker so could you explain that
1: i can yeah so so i think robocop is about this cop that gets put back together because it's the ideal it's almost like interpreted as this is the ideal thing a cop would aspire to be Mm. of course part of the satire that it's not it's the it's what the imagined ideal for a company is Mm. you know and just like a lot of stuff in this film because it's a sort of a more visceral knockoff of Robocop in a way. The guy doesn't even die in an accident. The LAPD just shoots him anyway and says, oh, we're going to put you back together because we need you to do something. You know, like they want you for an assignment. So they literally just kill him, basically, Mm -hmm. um, and put a bomb in his heart because, you know, um, (laughs) if, if you're going to put someone back together, why not? But the idea that, like, you're being replaced with more and more parts to make you more um durable and you know and make you more exploitable like you know they turn off someone you know you, someone gets their brain turned off in this or they can track what's coming out of your eyes or it's um i mentioned this is my own podcast but i think it's it's really really struck a chord with me a twitter user called marxian ergonomics kind of did this thread about how were like automated trucking and and stuff that's happening in factories is not to replace workers it's become this kind of uh canard that's that's trotted out to stop people talking about workers rights because they can just talk about workers existences instead mm. but like what it, what it actually is is extraction of labor right so so They just want you to do more. You know, like, all the stuff that Amazon really does in those warehouses is figure out a way to have more and more of your activities monitored so they can push you to do more stuff. You know, they just want to take more labour out of one person. This is why part of what this film is to me is this guy gets torn apart in the name of, in the service of whatever he's doing, put back together in, you know, again... And he's literally told, like, we own you. And again, incredibly cheesy. But he's not just talking about him. He's talking about the actual constituent parts he's made from. And, you know, you get these um, characters that are... they're You know, someone, somebody says, I want my death to mean something. You know, one of the androids says, I want to matter. I want to do something mm. that will last after me. And, like, all they are at the moment are these tools for these uh, kind of larger corporations. Or these, again, like, the politics of this film are... Like the geopolitical landscape is extremely confused. You know, you're not, you don't know if you're dealing with corporation states or you don't know which
0: cyberpunk trope is kind of going on in the background. You know? I think Japan but, and US might be one country in this, but I'm not sure.
1: Oh, finally. Uh, <laughs> somebody like they do start calling people something San at one stage, which is like classic William Gibson Orientalism. That's a for some reason, a key part of cyberpunk. But, um, you know, he says like, oh, surgery by surgery, I became more machine than human. And, you know, he says that and someone's like, you know, you, well, he's like, I didn't have any choice, you know, because this is the situation you exist in. And you're kind of accepting as a reality the pressures put on you by the company you're part of, you know, and like the assumptions you have and how you're willing to actually change your body and change your outcome or, or your your aims or your values according to what your the people who employ you or the people that basically own you you know what they want so again you know it's not the most coherent thing in the world but it does strike me that again and again you know this guy they they put a camera in his eye and one of the the kind of early acts of uh, rebellion or whatever is in an incredibly graphic scene. He gets the camera taken out of his eye. Um, and then, you know, there's characters are shot by other characters because they don't matter because, you know, you're able to justify everybody else as being a robot, even if you're a special one or whatever. But it does seem to me that this... Um, This idea that people are people are resources in this, you know, more than anything else. You know, they're even the chief antagonist was said to be a female cyborg who was completely redesigned to be like the chief of police to replace him Hmm. like forcibly. And yeah, it just seems to me again and again this idea that you're. The, the perfect yeah the perfect worker for a company is something that they can extract the most value out of. So.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean in terms of in terms of talking about him being instrumentalized, it's important to say like even so, like you say they destroy him and put him back together because they want him to do a job for them. But it has like an almost another layer to it because the job they send him to do is is not actually what they like. They they tell him he's going on a mission to get some stolen data um, about a meeting between some people about the security plans or something. But they're actually sending him there as like a patsy to like draw out the people they actually want. So it's like he's he's been produced f- for a role that he's been sent to perform. And he he's not even performing that role that he thinks. He's literally just a, a tool for achieving a, another end.
1: Definitely, yeah. And I mean, even one of the reasons they have him as a patsy is because they want to have somebody that the robot will have an emotional connection with that they're or the android that they're trying to get will have an emotional connection with which in itself is really weird right you know so they and that's the woman in the calculator uh, but i mean even the right so the, the action scenes or whatever and the the aforementioned exploding pole all take place in these sort of post industrial like ruined factories and ruined landscapes and everything like that and it's even the, the town Shanglu I think it's called yeah. um, which gets receives one of the weirdest pronunciations of any place in any film um, from one of the actors um, but uh, it, even that is kind of this sort of outlaw and kind a of post-Gold Rush feeling place, you know, yeah. and the idea of being ruined, you know, the, this lack of empathy and being ruined by technology and everything, you know, you have the the most taken out of context because it's funny scene in the film which a cyber G-man tries to get information off an old woman and she takes a gun out of her purse and shoots him. And, yeah, and right. it is one incredibly ridiculous, but really cool, I have to say, really bizarre looking. And then completely ruined by the ADR of the star saying, oh, Shang Lu takes no shit, I like it here. Which is a Mm -hmm. a really lame thing to say. Um, But uh, even that is like this idea of this kind of post-everything cynicism. I think if the film had more money, it would go into that more. But I actually like how austere it is, you know, instead of like iRobot, where... You know, they basically have blimps going past. It says, "People are products." By the way, you know, like it, and make it really obvious that it's sort of implied here, by dint of necessity. Mm-hmm. So.
0: Yeah. Just one more thing on the worker thing. Something that I I was thinking of is it's interesting how how much of the film is just like stuff happening to him against his will. You know, the obvious thing where the where they come for him and say, "We we need you to do this job. We've put a bomb in your heart, so you're going to have to do it," but his attitude is almost like he almost goes along with the mission like not even he almost implies he's not even attending to do it it's like well they want me to go here now so I'll just get on the plane and do that step that they require of me and he's just almost like going through the motions and he when he gets there he's like in his hotel room and this gang, which we're not quite sure who they are at the time, show up and start beating him up and like interrogating him and then decide to leave him and they pass the terrorists on the stairs who come in and then he's ended up being choked again by, like, some. It's almost funny, but, like, it was a really um, nice illustration, I think, of the way, even without his desire or intention to, like, play his role as a worker, the systems are in motion and it was enough that he's just placed there and things just happen to him, like, without... He doesn't have to do anything. These things just happen to him, if you know what I mean.
1: And I think that's... Part of that is again i don't know why well i do because it is kind of a very noir in some senses
0: that happens a
1: lot of noir protagonists as well actually one of the the big things to unlock noir films um to me anyway is it's not about these super competent guys you know cutting around and taking everybody apart it's usually about somebody making the worst series of decisions possible and being very funny or very you know tough while they're doing it but it's, it's somebody's worst chain of decisions they've ever made. is usually a noir film. It's usually a man. And it's usually just stepping on his dick, basically. It's like how noir films work, right? But, like, that is like this. And I think, partially, it's because... One of the reasons noir films are like that is a lot of them came out after World War II, in the years after World War II, where you were sent to do something, and it was, you know, you were clearly fodder in a certain extent, Mm. and then you came back and you were trained to do one thing, that training to talk again about the worker stuff, and and this ties into being genetically enhanced as well. I think the video game Deus Ex, which I am too stupid to play properly, also goes into this, um, that you you are built, you are enhanced, but you're enhanced to do this one thing. So you have soldiers training, but that training makes you inherently unable to function in large swathes of like normal society and unable to almost recover from that training so like a lot of the noir detectives were ex-soldiers like it that became almost a well not almost that became like a cliche to throw in but part of it is because they had this thing locked into them this ability to navigate in high pressure situations with guns that doesn't really transfer into starting a butcher shop or whatever you know, or to be an insurance broker. And that's the same here. Like, this guy, feeling of powerlessness and the feeling of being made fodder is even though he is this perfect physical specimen. It's, a, it's He's a French kickboxer, the guy who did it. And even the, when the camera is, like, scanning up on him and he has this, like, crazy... It's an amazing shot, but it's a crazy thing to put in this film. Like, this kind of Christ pose with him holding a cross... And I'm talking about how his you know it took him six months to put me back together. is over this you know him talking about being a robot and whatever is of him saying it took me six months to them for them to put me back together. it's over this shot of his physicality and his his physical training you know so there's kind of a a a a twinness there with that so you know you're intensely capable and i mean he's doing all of the by the end of the film he's doing all of the action hero stuff he's literally swinging from vines (laughs) um i i think at one stage but again he is you know and and you could even say well part of the reason the acting is bad is because he is able to move in space he is that's the talent they have chosen to go with over anything else and that's what he is able to do you know he is a kickboxer he's able to operate like that so so you know you see these moments when the training kicks in like you know, my favourite action set piece of the film where he has to get out of a room and he does this by shooting through several floors of the hotel he's in to get out of the room Mm. and that's a crazy thing no one would think of but then that's why he's unable to do simple stuff like maybe don't go over there maybe don't get beaten up by this gang (laughs) you know, like he is very much trained to do one thing I mean, one of the robots even says you know, you're you're not when he tries to be a smuggler and they just they just cover that by cutting to a year later and him saying I am a terrible smoker, yeah. you know, basically like yeah, so it's literally um, there. Like everybody he
0: literally tries yeah. to do something else and he can't do it.
1: Yeah, yeah, and even at the end, like when he is he is taking somebody out, you know, he said, "Oh, you said that I was that I was so bad when I did this stuff on my own that people got hurt." And all he has figured out to do is how to direct that hurt at the right person, you know. So even when he's doing it for himself, he's still acknowledging, "I am just a thing you point at something to kill it. I'm not, you know." That's all he can do, you know. So it's just trying to use that for the right ends.
0: Mm. I mean, we've already talked about the locations a bit, but I don't. I just wanted to maybe talk about it a bit more. Like, I think, yeah, as you say, it's partly a budget thing. It's interesting because, obviously, cyberpunk tends to be about the city noir as well i think actually tends to be to some extent it's you know it's an urban genre but because of the budget like this film obviously can't show you like a future city the closest we get is maybe in a hotel at the beginning of the film so it's all these abandoned industrial places places all over the world this Final location in Shanglu is obviously made up. See, so, yeah, I don't know. Do you think that disjointedness? I would say, and like the way it moves between them, particularly the you know shifts to like he's going to get revenge for being turned into a robot, and that's suddenly over and. I think that there's a dog that he saves in the beginning of the film that's with him. And you think, oh, that's going to be his buddy. And then I think somebody, I think someone just shoots it and then it's gone. But whatever, there's all these, I mean, you think it's going to be something and then you're, you're somewhere else. So do you think that like confusion adds something to it in any way?
1: Definitely. I think so. I think as well, like you're looking at somebody who has, you know, it's a particular approach with filmmakers of that level or or of that style i would say almost a level where you know this film i i have to say like this is part of a genre of film that everybody's familiar with like kickboxer and that kind of stuff Mm. but this is an incredible looking film right like the light and everything and the the way stuff is framed the way the action sequences happen it is genuinely amazing that this film looks like this and you will always see screenshots of it out of context because as mad as it, we're making it sound by describing scenes as an aside. The way it looks, it looks like the only film ever to live up to its box in the action section of a video rental. You know, like it's yeah. it's just bizarre. You know, but but I think the approach or the, the the philosophy I was going to talk about is you're looking at someone who's who's trying to make as well as the best film the most film. You know, <laughs> and uh, and that's kind of why that disjointedness a little bit is there because. You know, it could be a thing that made more sense or a plot that was coherent a little bit more, but that looked a tenth of this. And if you're gunning for the market, this guy, you know, you want something that's exciting, memorable. Every film like this, you remember maybe two scenes, but I will say for Nemesis that basically every scene could be one of those two scenes in another film, be it the scene where they question him in some sort of desert alley that is surrounded by nothing mm. else on a chair um and where they all look like you know like cyber businessmen and like the guys trooping through the, the shitty hotel and your man like the classic Noir thing of the front desk guy losing his accent when he's <laughs> talking to somebody he works with or whatever, you know. Yeah, I, I think the disjointedness I mean I mean again, like I covered um Mask of Demetrius on my show, which is one of my favourite films ever, and it's it's about a journalist Travelling around the world... Tracking this criminal or whatever... But one of the things in the film is like... Look at these exotic locations... Even though they're basically... The same room with people wearing different styles of jacket... And like that is very much embedded in these... Kind of that sense of disjointedness... It's the same like... All noir films kind of feel like... They happen at about half three in the morning... And in mostly in like... Non places if you like... Alleyways or gas stations or whatever... And this is again... Born of necessity... Of this is where you can film it 's gonna look like this, but uh I mean especially like the town Shang Liu appears to be a single street um in the middle of nowhere like uh, like he walks down the street when he arrives. And the person he's there to find looks out a window and sees him, and all of the other people come <laughs> and beat him up at the same point, and something else happens. You know, like it, it knows it's a film, but it's not, it doesn't think it's funny, it's a film. But this disjointedness kind of comes from that school, I think.
0: That works probably unintentionally well as well. This, you know, this cyberpunk idea of like corporations and, nat- and nations being like almost omnipresent and the tentacles of capital reaching like everywhere even in this like little shithole town it's condensed so like everyone's there like all the forces are there um something i wanted to talk about which is i don't know maybe something of an aside but just as this film is about the plot of this film is essentially a conspiracy theory so as we said the There's these cyborgs who are replacing humans to try and take over, basically, and get rid of all the humans, which is, you know, there's these ties in with those conspiracies people have that there are lizards that are in control, like the president's a lizard and the queen's a lizard and and whatever, and we're run by lizard men. Yeah, I just wanted to say something about conspiracy theory based on a Frederick Jameson quote, and he said that conspiracy theory and its garish narrative manifestations must be seen as a degraded attempt through the figuration of advanced technology to think the impossible totality of the contemporary world system. So yeah, I just think that there's always something interesting about conspiracy theories that they grasp at this vague idea that they, whoever they are, are against us. Like, people can instinctively sense it in a way and it often gets degraded into these like racist conspiracies about jews and secret societies and so on but it it taps into a kind of political potential that people instinctively understand that somebody's against them even if they don't understand it and yeah the conspiracy plot line always taps into that yeah that's just something i've pointed to mentioned as it came to mind um
1: i think it's interesting that you mentioned that right because thinking more about how the head cyborg becomes evil wants to kill all the humans because androids are actually humans so deserve like are human in another sense not in a literal sense so deserve better but does that ends up embodying the worst of humanity and creates this conspiracy and whatever because um, am a friend mark i guess i call him my friend uh mark wrote this article for The Guardian the other week about New Zealand. Uh, I I got halfway through
0: that. I need to... I want to go back and finish that. That was really interesting. It's
1: a very good... It contains a very good paragraph about trying to drink an entire lake apart from anything else, which is, if you write anything, will make you incredibly jealous because you're never going to write that. Um, But it's about the PayPal guy who isn't Elon Musk, right? Peter Thiel. Mm. And buying land in New Zealand and how this is very interesting to me. A lot of these Silicon Valley guys have, because I think hacker culture is, an, is so informed by cyberpunk, right? Yeah. Sure. And that's so informed by these conspiracy theories that these Silicon Valley guys, even though they're the people at the top, right? Yeah. They're, they win. Like they have all the money, have invested in all of these extremely strange contingency plans and are actually trying to enact conspiracy theories, or think they're happening to them, or... Have yeah, they think, like, cultural exact...
0: Marxism, like, conspiracy yeah. to, like, undermine.
1: Yeah, and, and they, they're they convinced that this is all going to... And, like, Peter Thiel, he's building this bunker, or whatever, you know, and in, uh, he has this massive 400-and-something acres in New Zealand. And part of this, of course, is also because he's obsessed by Lord of the Rings, you know. So, <laughs> so this tendency of conspiracy theories... You take what's in front of you, as you said from the Jameson quote right, are kind you're kind of ambiently aware that you're being conspired against in some way. Mm. But also the anti socialist, so anti-anti capitalist rhetoric you've um maybe taken on means that you can't think of it that way. Uh, but you kind of try to come up with something.
0: Um mm.
1: that like the same thing has sort of happened where like you see these guys on top now, these these Silicon Valley guys who are like Elon Musk. He is in a situation where he can't think he's the bad guy, like you're looking at someone being yes. unable to realize he's the bad guy to the extent that he like has a load of cultists basically believing it on his part as well, like yeah he, Elon, he thinks he's going
0: to save the world and yeah, yeah. people and do, had, people believe him,
1: yeah, they do I mean Elon Musk is the first like there are plenty of millionaires that fall into like different stereo billionaires that fall in like i don't know the Simpsons or whatever, you know like the kind of way people caricatured billionaires but i think elon musk is the first 2000 ad billionaire because he has such a weird set of beliefs and people are so uncritically believing in his same thing and he aspires to something so both surface and also silly and like selling flamethrowers to people and stuff like it's um it's that belief yeah yeah like you are seeing the same logic that concocts conspiracy theories concoct these inane, horrific attempts at social engineering by these impossibly moneyed nerds, you know, like that. And there are, a lot of them are post-humanists. Like, Mark's book is about post-humanism and guys who want to freeze their heads and, you know, Rocco's Basilisk and shit like that. You know, like, these bizarre ex- expandings of this theory, you know, or, or this
0: this way of thinking. So, basically... Peter Thiel and Elon Musk of Farnsworth is the conclusion. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh I mean, let's talk, try, talk a bit maybe about the film's representation of women. I mean, I think probably, I mean, it's a, a B-movie, and in some sense they've been put there to be looked at, particularly uh, Julian, I think is her name. But, I mean, they do also play all the leading roles in The Resistance, and they're the ones that have uncovered the truth. And they're the... Only cyborgs we see that are not defined by what they've been produced to do, if you know what I mean. They're the only ones that rebelled and left the police voluntarily. I mean, they are also gradually killed off to leave a man in charge of kind of a subordinate. I don't know how old she's, she's supposed to be. like She acts like a child. I don't know if she's supposed to be.
1: Yeah, yeah. And her name is like, what's her name again? Like nuclear assault or something. She has some bizarre name, the, the, the ending sidekick.
0: She's was she like meant an... to be what was the was she putting on like a weird accent? I couldn't yes. tell if she yeah, was putting she was on like a racist. Who
1: started saying, yes. She starts saying san. She's the she's the responsibility for san arbitrarily making its way into the film, I think.
0: Was she supposed to be Japanese or
1: I don't know. I don't know. I don't think so. I I can I thought that was just kind of standard cyberpunk orientalism I might but be but she wrong. also
0: spoke with like a weird I don't know probably she was trying to do a specific accent and she failed whatever she was trying to do
1: yeah I mean periodically the main antagonist does an Arnold Schwarzenegger impression and then stops um, yeah. in terms of accent and it's totally different from the accent they speak in for the rest of the film so there's a lot of that going on you know but that, again that arbitrariness is not just applied to accents it's applied to as you said like it eventually becomes a very rote structure for a, um, a kind of an, an action film where there's a guy and there's a subordinate woman and stuff but you're right like the the huge amount of the key players of the film are women or women robots with men's names kind of thing or traditionally male names or gender neutral mm. names or whatever like Jared and Julian and stuff and, and I thought what's your man's name again Max Rain or whatever is the name Alex, <laughs> the Rain? Alex Rain that's Alex again which is like right so it, it, is, a, it is an interesting film when it comes especially when you see like um, it sort of goes both directions where at once Thomas Jane who was not famous at this time which is why he's a minor part in this film has a cameo in this where he's basically totally naked and then gets beaten up which would are killed I think maybe which would be kind of a standard genre film thing to do to a woman and she instead is kind of in control of the situation she holds the fort while the guy runs ahead you know she has the dramatic death and whatever Mm and the and of course the obviously as well you know, the pornographically violent death where her eyes get scooped out mm. and the lead antagonist hilariously said your memory has already been wiped um which is again incredible uh but and like attaches wires to the end of her body as it's melting or what but um yeah again i think it's using its arbitrariness it's it it is intentional. I think that, and and it's again using its arbitrariness for good. And if this is the movie series, if the movies, I just want to make hundred percent sure that if the movies I'm thinking of that came after this are correct, it was the following films were all. Um, the star of them was a. F- female bodybuilder i think named sue price um, and okay. so and and she kind of again there's a lot of kind of uh, ambiguous gender stuff in the, in the in the following films as well you know and i think part of this comes from this uh, sort of ultra fit person culture you know yeah. like uh, bodybuilding culture or whatever where even though you would think it's it's kind of turbo masculine and 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 it is to an extent But the sort of aesthetics that are prioritized by bodybuilding and whatever means that the usually gendered, you know, kind of ways people would scan as attractive and whatever in films might not apply to the same extent. So Mm.
0: I was thinking it's interesting that pretty, I think all the women in this, maybe, or most of the women in this are, are cyborgs. And like coming off the back of Ghost in the Shell as well, it's interesting that women are so often used as the kind of as the territory on which that, you know, this post-human thing's explored, I think, which, again, there was, you know, you can go back and listen to the Ghost in the Shell episode if you haven't heard it, but, I mean, there's, I think there's something powerful in, in that, liberatory in that, the because, like, the cyborg, you know, represents something new, sort of breaking boundaries, which is obviously why it's, it's so often mapped onto women who are, who are breaking boundaries, but also problematic, I think, in that, You have this thing a lot in films where women are basically used as like symbolic territory rather than people.
1: Well, definitely. I mean, I think it's a fairly standard thing in sci-fi films that the implied aim for a female character would be to be forever desirable. And the implied aim for a male character would be to be a brain in a computer because at their basest element, one's a giant intellect and the other is a desirable object or whatever mm. um again the woman in the calculator uh, <laughs> subverts this yeah. nemesis by being in a calculator whereas the uh highly like aggressively aestheticized uh, main character alex rain is basically shown as this ultra desirable um invented created physique throughout um so i guess that's another way in which this film does its best i think that is interesting actually honestly for a lot of those genre films that you know people said oh you know they they it used to be these guys these skinny guys that could act in of these muscle-bound heroes or whatever but like they do there was less so now but there was this period where the pure aesthetics of male physique or whatever and and the uh <laughs> the advances in steroids really helped with this i think as well entered this kind of interesting arbitrary zone when it came to where the camera went and how it how it um depicted certain kind of bodies and whatever but you are definitely right in sci-fi that there's i mean it's the same there's a, a very good um interesting piece of writing you probably go, i can't remember who wrote it now i know it's uh, anyway sorry excuse me uh, about um the black body in science fiction and the implications of uh, black superheroes always having electricity powers, which is not something you think about. And if you do know a lot about superheroes, it is a bit of an oh shit kind of thing. And and also the willingness to show eviscerated black bodies like Cyborg, who is the obviously the black character in Justice League. The first thing you see him as is a corpse, you know, and is kind of built back together or whatever. And, uh, and, and this sort of, these ways of The ways that obviously all fiction tends to, almost all fiction tends to treat white male as default person. You know, the every person that stuff actually happens to and has agency, and everybody else has these roles. Mm. And that, yeah, I think that's definitely yeah what you're talking about with the female there, and it applies to kind of black bodies as
0: well. Mm. Okay, well, I'm not sure how to sort of wrap this up. So I'll just kind of try to, I think, summarize. The argument that you've made that is comes through in this film, which is that the dystopia is not so much that androids are coming, it's that we're becoming androids through these systems that are trying to Instrumentalize us and extract value from us, and yeah. Um, unless I have I missed anything?
1: Uh, no, no, that, but I would urge people, especially I, I imagine people who listen to this podcast are probably the kind of people who like I don't know read books and stuff, not the people who listen to my podcast. Um, but I would still urge you, especially if this film looks stupid or sounds stupid, which it will if you're not used to seeing stuff like this, to just on an aesthetic level, this is an incredible looking film. And is so of its time and so totally unlike something that would be delivered today without irony. There is no irony in this film at any stage, uh, and for good or ill. And I would encourage you to watch it. Um, but as I said, it's not for everybody. But I think, yeah, I think it's worth seeing it as a springboard for those ideas as well. And the name that I kept trying to remember of the female character was Max Impact. Okay.
0: There we go. Um, yeah, I think uh, it's... So you would think that a film that's this silly um, would be very easy to engage with, but I think it's actually kind of... I found it kind of difficult for that reason because I wasn't expecting it to be so... Yeah, you don't know, have these ridiculous lines and be so you know low-budget and B-movie-ish. And when you start... I started trying to engage with it very <laughs> earnestly, which is probably not like the right way to do it, But um, you can see uh, this other stuff is is there if you engage with it in the right way, I think. So, uh, Sean, would you like to tell people about your podcast?
1: Yeah, so if you liked the last hour of conversation, the less interesting parts, which is the parts I said have its own podcast called All Units, where I, so I have All Units and Calling All Units basically every two weeks I take two films that are thrillers and kind of, use them to examine a particular concept. Um, I've done a number of series. I've done a whole series on work and intoxication and we're doing navigation at the moment, which is how people navigate through reputation or the legal system or grief or trauma. Um, so kind of take two films and see how they, the best film criticism is other films, right? So that kind of informs the podcast and kind of guiding you towards that. And every other week, I just talk about whatever. Um, I've had episodes recently about the kind of culture on YouTube and wider internet culture and yeah i do a lot of stuff about how like all the files are going to go and nothing's going to exist anymore and whatever and like techno apocalyptic stuff (laughs) and uh so yeah it's it's there's definitely something for some people and um it's it's short mercifully unlike the usual three or four hour podcast you get now so i don't presume upon too much of your time and uh yeah it might be worth listening to so Mm -hmm.
0: I very much recommend people listen to it I am not just being nice about the podcast I listen to every episode, it's really good and you don't need to be some film buff or anything I'm certainly not that um, and the episodes are still incredibly interesting even if you've not seen the films as I have hardly seen any of them so but yeah, thank you very much for coming on, Sean. Sure. Uh, my
1: pleasure, I really enjoyed this podcast and I, I was happy to lower the tone once again for an episode so.
0: That's the end of my conversation with sean about nemesis i hope you enjoyed it i usually ask for itunes reviews at this point just to explain why i don't entirely understand how itunes works myself but i understand that reviews play a very important role in terms of the visibility of the stuff that that's shown on there that comes up when people are looking around so that's why i ask for reviews so if you could take the time to give me a quick review on itunes if you're on itunes That will make a difference in terms of the exposure the podcast gets and hopefully you'll get more people listening which would be great so i also have a patreon at patreon.com slash utopian horizons to help me cover the hosting costs and stuff and just make it more sustainable in terms of the amount of time i spend uh, doing this so if you are able to contribute financially and would like to give me a quid or a couple of quid or whatever you can do that at um, patreon.com slash utopian horizons if you've got any feedback on the episodes any questions anything like that you can come into the discord and chat to me there and other people or you can email me at utopian at gmail.com uh, i think i've met mentioned twitter's at utopian horizons facebook at facebook.com slash utopian horizons but i always forget to post on that so the next episode is going to be on a book called no the next episode is probably going to be on Strange Days. Yeah, I think. So yeah, Strange Days will probably be the next one, at least that's coming up. And then there will be an episode on the book The Angel of the Revolution, which is a kind of um, HG Wellsish era book, I think. I'm reading that at the moment, so that will delay the next Philip K. Dick episode, I do Um, somewhat, but I think I've already mentioned the next one I'll do will be The Simulacra, but um, that's probably going to be a little while. i finish reading Angel of the Revolution first. So yeah, Strange Days, Angel of the Revolution, then, I don't know, probably The Simulacra or possibly something else. Tom suggested to me in the Discord that I should think about doing something on Afrofuturism, which obviously is um, a lot of people talking about at the moment with uh, Black Panther and so on, and I think that's a good idea, so... I will probably try and do that at some point. But again, I doubt that will be soon. I've got some other stuff that I've got planned for the podcast to get out of the way first. So I don't know when I'll get to that, but one day I will. Thank you very much for listening and I will see you for the next episode. (laughs)